0: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. There's a saying in the Bhagwat Parana, Srimad Bhagavatam. Can you hear me? Let's see I'm straining a little bit there. I'll have to strain also. That's uh, part of love. <laughs> So uh <laughs> Bhagavad Purana, it's the great uh one of the the heart really of the sacred texts of India. It's kind of like the New Testament of the um, Eastern Revelation, if you will, beginning in with with the Upanishads and and uh, so many then directives about how to sit, how to stand, how to walk, and what direction to face, what time, and so forth. A lot of rules and things. And then the, this whole doctrine, if you will, or outpouring, I should say, of, of love in the form of the Bhagwat, Puranakam. It's like a, like a New Testament there, where this uh, Hari Kirtan is so much emphasized throughout as the most efficacious means of, of finding the fulfillment of love, absolute love. It's a beautiful book and a beautiful idea, but it's a wise love that's spoken of there, and we're not always so wise, so sometimes when we have to factor wisdom into our approach to love, it seems almost like we're going in the opposite uh, direction. Eat, Pray, and Love, I think that's a movie now. eat, pray, and then wise love would be a good idea. So in fact, there's some wisdom into that. And um, so there's a nice statement that came in my mind during the, the, the chanting for a moment there. It's a pretty strong statement, but it's, it's an important one. And I want to say that sometimes when we want to talk about something beautiful, we also have to talk about what's not beautiful. That's helpful can be helpful. So it's a statement kind of like that. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, a profound beauty, if you will. Which reminds me of another poem from the same book that I've often quoted, sometimes here also, just as a, an aside. The text says, ayur harati sam buddhyan asthan That the rising and the setting of the sun, which is such a beautiful thing, Sometimes we go and watch the sunset in and of itself, or or the sunrise. What to speak of the how significant its moving as it appears, at least across the sky, is to us. If it didn't come up, that means to say tomorrow we would know how significant that daily event that we become accustomed to and almost bored with, unfortunately, is such a profound, significant, powerful. Uh, event and it's not simply a mindless and meaningless kind of movement of matter. Matter doesn't move without mind. Of course some people like to think mind is matter but we will vote for mind over matter (laughs) and if they could prove their theory of course they would have won a Nobel Prize by now there's a long way they're a long way from that. We have a different idea One of downward, if you will, causation from consciousness then comes meaning and from meaning comes the world. I like to say, if the world or if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know? Who would care? So consciousness is primal, of course, this is the old way of thinking. When people ate better, when they ate real food instead of money they could think more clearly, is the idea. We do a lot of thinking these days, but how clear it is sometimes. Outside of beautiful circles like this, sounds conceited, I suppose, but <laughs> it's pretty wild out there. The call of the wild, so to speak. So, again, with the rising and the setting of the sun, it's a beautiful thing, but the text says, ayur It's taking away your life as you know it, means the conventional sense of self that is uh, on death row, so to speak, the egoic conventional sense of self, that I'm, you know, a, whatever, a Portlander, or I'm an American, or an Indian, or black, or white, or man, or woman. This conventional sense of self derived, this I derived as it is from what we think is ours, largely, The desires that we have in relation to things, they form a sense of self, a sense of goods and bads and happies and sads and so on, that we orbit around, and um, this is then the conventional self, the egoic material sense of self. And as the poem goes, the rising and the setting of the sun, Ayurharati, is taking away that sense of self. So that doesn't sound like you might want to just go sit on the beach and watch the sunset, you know, and do something about it. And, of course, we are doing something about it. We are trying to save that conventional sense of self by all types of maneuvers and all types of thoughts at all times in the shower, and how I will protect myself, how I will increase my bank balance, protect my family, this, that. I will do this faster, do that slower. This is, the mind is moving like this and futilely because that uh, that sense of self cannot be protected. But that sounds a little um, disconcerting, I realize that. But there's another side to the kind of Darwinian side. The Bhagavad puts it like this, jivo jiva sijivanam, one living being is food for another. <laughs> So that's one side, that's the animal, so to speak, uh, side of the animality of us, if you will. And here we are in human time, which is the junction. It's, just, it's really a junction between animality and spirituality. It's such a valuable opportunity. I'm thinking of writing a book called The Biography of the Self. It's a, you know, you don't biography about someone who... You have to write a biography. A friend of mine wrote a biography about himself and brought it to a publisher, and the publisher said, well, if you ever become somebody, send it back to us, and then we'll publish it, because nobody knows about you, so we don't think we'll have much capacity to, to market it. So it requires that if you write a biography about a famous person, I should say, it doesn't require, but if you do, that'll sell more volumes. So this biography of the self is about the most popular person that no one knows. The self. The question is not whether to be or not to be. The fact is, I am. And what to do about that? What am I? Why am I? And these are the questions that arise in human time. Why? It's an existential question that arises in human life, not in other less complex forms of life. And... Um, we are pressed to answer that and by the ideas in the Purana, in the the Bhagavad, by doing so effectively all the how questions are answered automatically. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend. We are very confused about these things. There are millions of theories and still plenty of indigestion and sleepless nights and other things, (laughs) other problems. We're about to, you know, sometimes on the verge of blowing ourselves up in the name of defending ourselves. And um, mating is very, very complex. So why? Why is it complex when these questions arise in other forms of life but are not difficult at all to answer? Think about it. The animals have no difficulty answering these questions, that there's a system built into nature to deal with issues regarding our material nature, if you will, our conventional sense of self. Of course, that sense of I am hasn't really been born yet in plant life, in animal life. In human life it's born. Nature realizes it has a soul. It thinks, I am. and So this is human life and it's a new problem a huge new problem. It's an existential crisis. Human life is in the overall picture of living which takes place in many different forms, expresses itself in many in plant life, in, in insect life, aquatic life, in human life. And this question is born and it's a, this existential crisis that is upon us. human life itself, it is an existential crisis the question is why why am i why is there there seems to be a meaning there seems to be a purpose and we are pressed to find it out and this question then i want to say as opposed to the how questions which can be answered by nature for example every species has a system to defend themselves right Every species has a defense mechanism as far as the whole thing can be defended. Right? That's also to be learned if we observe. As good as nature provides a defense mechanism for any different species of life, it's provisional. It's not absolute. Change must come. All things must pass. Things must pass. But we are observing the passing of the things. And so we are to think that the best things in life are not things, it's us, the thinker, the perceiver, the experiencer, not that which is experienced. And that person, that I, that is born, so to speak, in human time, the time we live in. So a biography of the self, it would be interesting to write. It's a popular person, but nobody knows him at the same time. Therefore, the necessity for the biography. And in its youth, as it began to ponder the question, it naturally, the self naturally thought, I'm more than what meets the eye. I'm more than what the nature seems to afford me. This is the the sense that starts to come in, in human life. And so, the more the purpose, the meaning behind is sought out, the why of things. I heard a debate some time ago between a British scientist, uh, secularist atheist, and a British theist. And the theist said something like, "Well, science answers answers how questions, and religion seems wants to answer the." The why questions of, of of life, and the scientist said, "There are no why questions." And I thought I would have said, "Why do I have to listen to that, <laughs> you animal? We <laughs> have no no why question. think there's no purpose, no meaning." And they do, of course. This is this is the real trick of the brain. You see, they say and. Philosophy of mind these days with many different and opposing and strongly opposing opinions about the so-called material nature of consciousness that it's a trick of the brain. But this is a trick of the brain to think that we are but a trick, a misfiring of the brain. That is a backwards idea. Powerful thing. I mean, this one poem, the sun's moving across the sky, rising and setting beautifully. And it's killing us. So, what could speak more loudly to us, as I say, than the sun rising? If it didn't tomorrow, we would know how powerful of a thing that is. We've become accustomed to it, bored with it. What a sin. This is the real sin in life, is boredom. It comes from not paying attention. The whole of nature is speaking to us about the opportunity that human life affords us from every direction is speaking about the more that we can be that we are really nature is saying to us rise above me I'll even assist you and in modern society we are trying to conquer nature and suppress nature and to wrestle her to the ground and change the nature of nature We seed the clouds what's the problem if we, can't have, we don't have no more soil, we'll grow in water or something. That's possible to a point, but they polluted the water too. So this is one approach, the modern approach for the last couple hundred years to suppress nature. Right? It's the same pursuit. Humans cannot get away from it to try to rise above the limits of nature. But one way about of going about it that human society has been pursuing the last couple hundred years, has potential negative ramifications. Nature is big. Big. Another person sent me a video it was pretty neat actually. It said here is the size of Earth and there was a sphere and then here is the size of the next biggest planet and here is the size of the next one and the next one and there is the size of the Sun and you the size of this star and, and went all as far as they knew about the biggest whatever is out there and then they put the earth next to that and it was you couldn't even see it on the screen practically. We are in one city, in one brain, in one mind where we live in a very, very tiny speck of dust in a universe which could be surrounded by millions of universes and nature is big, big and we're bigger than nature qualitatively, not quantitatively. You understand? Nature gets its animation from us. So we have a relationship with nature. We turn the show on, so to speak, by investing ourselves in matter. Matter takes on a life. Consciousness is the life. So we have a relationship. And by working together, so to speak, our strengths can be realized. Our qualitative difference as consciousness rather than matter can be experienced. And in doing so, we can appreciate matter for what it does. We're kind of born from the soil of matter, in in a sense, humanly speaking. We're like a lotus. You know, It's born in the mud and in the water, but it doesn't get dirty or muddy. So there's a way to work with nature such that you can be as the adage goes in the world but not of the world so to speak not partaking in the Darwinian side of one living being being food for another type in the, in the taking that identification on the part of consciousness a living thing with a dead thing matter forces us to be involved in Do you understand know what I'm saying? If I'm a living thing I'm identifying with something dead. I'm going to feel empty. I'm running on empty. I'm going to feel in need. So yoga is about changing that kind of identification. And that's about, really about about loving. But when we first start to talk about it, it may not... It's like I say, it's wise love, so we have to factor some wisdom into it, and then we have to shed light on what's not love. And as much as we might... Nod her head and agree, yeah, it doesn't sound like it's love, but I'm attached to it, <laughs> nonetheless, attachment is of course is a, is a source of of suffering. This is just not debatable. you want any empiric kind of evidence to support this pursuit of yoga, if you will that which is theoretically as older old the olden times we used to think that consciousness is the more, and they say, well, there's no empiric evidence to support that there's anything more than matter so why should we buy into these old theories and all the religious baggage and superstition that goes with it and so forth uh, well we don't need to buy into old superstition and religious baggage that's, that's true but we don't have to erase ourselves in a process we are not a superstition and as for empirical evidence well this is kind of like the Buddha said well you know the problem is thirst Desire that causes suffering. I mean, what more hard evidence uh, do you need? Just think about it. Why are you in anxiety? Because you want something, that's all. You want to be thinner. You want to put on some weight. You want to change a relationship. You want to end a relationship. You want to get in a relationship. You want to eat. You want to sleep. We are wants is what we are, in terms of our conventional sense. So that's what we are, a bundle of wants, and it's uncomfortable. But then again, what is life without desire, without will? So how to will? That's the idea. Not necessarily to stop, but to move with with the will, the central will, to connect with the central will, our small will, something like that. Then we will be happy. We're kind of going... Against the stream, wanting, owning, possessing, which time tells us nothing belongs to us. This is going against the current. And if it doesn't belong to us, then it's not unreasonable to conjecture that it might belong to someone else. That there might be, you know, it's the center, a center, a meaningful, purposeful center. That things, parts, the whole. Have a relationship to the whole, and so forth. So, so at any rate, to come out from underneath this um, this li- this identity of wants and desires, this confusion of consciousness, identifying itself with matter, life, the animate, identifying itself with the inanimate, in a way that's out of balance, if you will. I was once riding on a plane with a fellow. Well, you now you have to sit next to somebody. And I was chanting on my my mala quietly and he turned to me and said, What what is it that makes you have to do that? I said, Could be you, I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, I could have said that to him too, for a lot of things that he was doing, you know. And uh cocktails and whatever. Um but I didn't, so so then, you know. Anyway, we did enter into a slightly philosophical discussion about the whys of that, and I was speaking to him about spiritual life, and he said, "Well, I still think it's a little like out of balance, a little fanatical." So I asked him, "Well, what do you think's more important, the experiencer or the the that which is experienced?" I think, uh, you know, the Bible says something like, "What does a person gain if they lose the whole, gain the world but lose their?" The self, the soul, or something like that. And I kind of put it in that kind of perspective. And uh, we weighed it out. And I said, you know, let's put it on a scale here. You know, let's take the whole world and put it on this side here, okay? All of matter combined. Let's put one one self on the other, you know, tiny. A the balance will weigh in favor of the, of the self. Why are we interested in matter? You We're know, we trying to cross the river with our gold bags. We have to let go of a bag to cross the river to save yourself ultimately. And the self the self is important. The Matter is important to us because we project ourselves into it. That's the only reason that it has meaning or value to us. Consciousness has the capacity to project itself into things, as I say, and turn them on, so to speak, give them life. The driver gives meaning to the car, otherwise what is its meaning? So when we project ourselves into things, those things have to take on value for us. So so what's the value? Is it the thing or is it ourself? You understand? It's my house, so it's important. If it's your house, well, you know, so what? If the bank takes it back, you know. If you're my friend, then it will have some value, you know, to me. So the point is that consciousness is what's value, what's dear to us. The self is what's dear to us. And in order to pursue ourself. Well, we might have to save ourselves even from our friends because misery loves company. You know, I've had some shocking experience the other day because I saw a um, video of some celebrities at a gathering for the organization called PETA, for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and they were all just saying a few words about wish people would eat less meat or, you know, people would be kinder and this kind of thing. and then, then I started reading the comment. There were comments on it, it was on the internet. I couldn't believe what the people were saying. They were, I mean, I live in a you know, <laughs> it was a small world, I suppose, of people who are kinder. <laughs> it was pretty scary, actually. It was, uh, that uh, it was frightening. There's some meanness out there, and insensitivity, which, which you know if it's an animal expresses that, you expect that. You know, <laughs> they're not always polite. Uh, they're driven by the force of their particular embodiment. We are humans, we have the chance to do something voluntarily. this, is a, this means we have a chance to, to love, to give. it's a great opportunity, but people abuse it. So at any rate, um, some light has to be cast on that. Uh, I think that we might have a negative impetus to move away from something unbecoming. So some of the poems in the Bhagavad they, they do speak like that. This is one I was thinking of as I began. It's uh, it's it's kind of like that. It says, Kama Sinindriya priti. Lavo jivetayavata. Jiva Sitatignasu Nato Yaschaya Kamabi. I always loved it. It made so much meaning to me. It had so much uh it was so um so uh compelling to me. But it starts out like this, it says Kama Sinindriya priti. Indriya means in Sanskrit senses and priti means love. So Kamasya na Indriya priti. Life should and not be lived for love of the senses. Hmm? You know, our senses are connected with objects in the world of sight, of smell, of taste and sound and so forth. And we can like go into the world through these openings of the senses and uh, identify ourselves there, form an identity. And uh, Bhagavad says life should not ever be should be not be lived for this for indriya priti, there yama Therefore, something about yoga, something we do, something we don't do. And the idea about yoga is to control that. Really, the idea is to change that priti, from indriya priti, love of the senses. That is called calm, hmm? calm Means like means lust in love of the senses, indriya priti, kamas in indriya, love of the senses. That is called lust. And Krishna indriya priti, kamastra uh, uh, indriya vancha, Krishna indriya priti vancha. Vancha means here like uh, desire. It says love of the senses that is called lust. And when the love of the senses of Krishna develops within us. That is called love. So it means there's a way to use the senses. Like I said, there's a way to express will. We are a unit of will. We don't want to, like, to do away with ourselves altogether. But what we're willing, and that's a problem. What we're willing to do, that's also a problem. To rectify the, the problem. So some force of good association, some power, if you will, of knowledge, to move us in the direction away from Indriya Priti to Krishna Indriya Priti. We have to talk about what that means, what it means to satisfy the senses of Krishna. But the poem goes like that. Kamasan Indriya Priti, Lavoji Veta Yavata. One should not live one's human life, it means speaking to human beings. We're the ones that read. So, one should not Live the human life simply for love of the senses. It is such a loss. You know, if you have an inheritance, you're not wealthy until you you spend it, right? And and you could spend it and become a pauper. So human life is a great uh, opportunity. It's a great wealth. It's something like probation. You know, you're out of the jail. You've got a leash. You've got some freedoms. Freedom to make choices. As I said, to do something voluntarily, rather than just being forced to do whatever the your embodiment kind of demands of you. We we have demands that our bodily identification imposes upon us, and our minds and so forth. But we have intellect too, where we can think. We can think that would be nice, but our intelligence can say, "Yeah, but it would be not good for you. It might, it might be nice, but not nice for you." You ever have that? Kind of experience, (laughs) yeah, we do readily. So we know we have intelligence, but how well we use it. If we use our intelligence just to pursue the mind's demands, then are we really any different than any other species of life? We're just a bigger beast. You understand? Intelligence if 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 it differentiates us as we think from less complex forms of light, then it should be used in a way to demonstrate that difference. If it's only used to, to find more intelligent ways to answer how questions, how to eat, how to sleep, then, then what we find in that, even the, the intelligence becomes corrupted, you see. It becomes corrupted by the demands of mind and senses. It makes a wedding with the mind and the senses, and then it sounds intelligent, but it's not. Make, what do they call that stuff? They spray on the weeds? Roundup. Roundup. <laughs> you know, it took intelligence to make Roundup, but, <laughs> you know, it's not very well thought out. Do you understand? It's the end of the life in the soil. Then what? The soil has no life. Then, then we're, where will we get our food? So, this is what I mean by intelligence is wedded to the demands of the senses and the mind. For indriya just for titillation, for gratification, for, for increasing the material sense of identity, enhancing it, making it the more that the self feels it is. Whether it be bigger, fatter, or whatever, more, more things. This is the wrong, I mean, everybody's pursuing the sense that we are more. Just how to go about it, and whether you really arrive at more by that. The more, to be Zen, is less from the material perspective. The way in which we try to try to get more it turns out to be less, much less. So this is, you know, the Roundup is an example of intelligence being wedded to the demand, to the, our animal side, if you will. So it becomes corrupted. It's still pretty powerful. I mean, it's, you know, it took a big brain to figure out how to make a Roundup, and who knows what else is out there. But what is the quality of the intellect if it only facilitates being bigger a bigger taker a bigger beast and if we then so uh, so to use in, intellect in another way to wean us from our animality to take us in another direction if it, if it is said to distinguish us from that then it should be used for that it should be used to pursue the more in a more intelligent way by Taking less, because the more we're taking, the the smaller we're becoming. That's a fact. Taking causes the sense of self to contract, and giving causes the sense of self to expand. If you want to think nationally rather than just, you know, locally, then you you identify with the whole nation, and you get involved in making sacrifices to make. The country better and so forth. So that this is a crude example, but this 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 the self expands by sacrificing. Think not, what did he say? What you can your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country is a small example idea, right? You the self is growing, right? People go, Wow, yeah, that that sounds noble and big hmm? Even though you have less. Or it would seem, right? Don't think about what you can do for yourself. But what what your country can do for you, what you can do for your country. So the idea is, this is, this is not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I mean, Kennedy said it, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is just an, this is like a universal kind of truths that we're talking about, that everybody accepts on some level. how to play them out, the ideas here, to their fullest implication, the fullest ramifications, how beautiful that will be. This is the idea of Vedanta. This is the idea of yoga. And don't wait for everybody to take it up. They won't. You know, they're not going to. It's a radical idea, actually. You're going in a very different direction. Then you have yourself have gone in for millions of lifetimes outside of human form. Now you've got a human dress. And a, the majority wants to take you down so sort it's of like say misery loves company still even in the course of pursuing it they're trying to be the more everyone's trying to be the more that we are but how to go about it that's all and really solve the why question why am i am i just here to eat and sleep for for a while have offspring and leave them some inheritance and try to live on in that way eternally these are all this is the pursuit of the self of what it is. I heard a fellow in an interview he said that um, was interviewing a theologian about consciousness. and a theologian said that consciousness, you know, as long as we can remember, has always been, you know, in the, in the, from the time of the Greeks, he was Western, of course, so from the time of the Greeks onward, that consciousness was more was, was more, and things were less. And then the fellow interrupted him and said, "Yeah, but you know now we know better. you know we have modern science and so forth, and we've learned so much about what consciousness is that you know that's what people thought before they had the kind of knowledge that we have now. And the fellow replied, he said something like, "Well, we may have more knowledge, but I'm not sure how much more knowledge we have about consciousness. I really felt like." jumping in there and saying (laughs) I heard another interview with a fellow um, who was very prominent in in philosophy of mind and I've told this before he told the same interview this is a different interview but the same interviewer he said I think that if we have given about a thousand years of science that if we weren't bogged down by like spiritual kind of burden of propaganda, you know, for ages and so forth. We could just be, like, freed from that. We would be much more free to think about consciousness as matter. And I think within about a thousand years of science, we'll be able to successfully demonstrate that consciousness is, is matter. There's nothing, you know, transcendental. And I really had a chuckle because, I mean, he's really saying, we know nothing. About consciousness. A thousand years of science. Science has only been with us for about 200 years. I'm not against science, but it has its domain. A thousand years of science. You know how fast science develops now, exponentially, in terms of its discoveries and fact finding and its information that it gathers, which, of course, is interpreted by everybody in different ways. We just published an article on The Harmonist that said it was about how they've now discovered that the laws of physics don't apply universally. They don't apply everywhere in the universe. It's a huge discovery. But it's just a fact. You can interpret it and go, wow, that proves there's no God. <laughs> and someone would go, wow, that proves there's God. You know, there's, just to use a crude example. It's just, it's just facts, how you interpret it. That's your religion. Humans are religious. That means humans ask why questions, purpose questions, That's what they do. And they take facts and they interpret them to mean there's no purpose. And that's their purpose that they've found. Or, you know, the other way. So, what do we know about consciousness, about ourself, what its possibilities are? He was a leading person in the field, so to speak, uh, and... uh, he said, in a thousand years. And I thought, if we—he said—if we he said, if we weren't burdened by like spiritual thinking and so forth, I thought, burdened? <laughs> he said, this is the burden. You're imposing a burden. The burden is that although we all intuitively feel that we are, you're really not. There's really nothing there. It's just a trick of the brain. That's all. That you think I am. Consciousness is just a This comes and goes, and and that's the whole story. You know, a zombie is basically what they're saying. That is oppressive. In other words, consciousness unto itself naturally thinks about more and purpose and pursues it, and that's what people were doing. Now, in olden times, and they were experiencing too, people go, well, where are all the saints now? Well, there aren't that many, that's true, but then what's the world like now? Is it friendly to them? Does it have a worldview that fosters spiritual pursuit? And the experience of... the mystic experience of the nature of consciousness? The world's going in a very different direction. You know, with, the, uh, with modernization, so we were able to solve various... We were able to live longer, let's say, you know, and, and kill some diseases and create a few too. But we get the worst thing of it all is, and it's, is that we get tied to the idea that this way of dominating nature is going to solve all of our problems, going to answer all the questions. We get more things, and so, well, we get addicted to the means of getting the things, and we get invested in that, uh, that idea, and then we move away from ideas that are more challenging, that the best things in life are not things, for example. We should move, step back from things. Our animal tendency is to take, to get. The body is demanding. The mind is is demanding. It's imposing wants upon us. So to move back from that that's yoga. It's not so easy yoga. I don't mean just the poses. They're hard too. (laughs) But um, it's a challenge to move in the direction of giving and away from taking. We are takers. Hunters and hunters. It's it's a difficult and radical proposal. So if we can just flood ourselves with things, we can forget about it. You take some facts, you take some technology, interpret the facts in a particular way, get things, and you can forget about the why questions. And you can say, there are no why questions. That seems to be uh, easier. (laughs) But it's, it's an empty hand, it's an empty bag, it's an empty shopping bag, you come home with nothing, no goods, not whole goods, whole foods, no foods. It's, it's really, it's backwards. So when his intelligence is, becomes wedded to the demands of the senses and the mind, this is becomes, this is the corruption then of intelligence. And people are smart, they think about all kinds of things, but all they think about is how to conquer, how to collect. So... No, and you come up with ideas like this: consciousness is just a just a trick of the brain that you, you feel that there's somebody in there. It's called you. you know, it's not. It's is kind of leading thinking and philosophy of mind and so forth. This, I think, that is a burden. That is like the natural, intuitive sense of every human being. Is that that there's downward causation? So you cannot demonstrate it to the satisfaction of somebody today. In the, we all think that it comes from here and then it goes, then we act. You understand? That consciousness is causal. It gives meaning to matter and so forth. So take it the other way around is very oppressive. It's oppressive to the human condition. People say, well, it may be tough to think about, but here, gratify, <laughs> dull yourself out enough, take enough things and you'll buy it, something like that. It's just, a, it's just a religious theory, not a very satisfying one. I mean, it's just a metaphysical theory. Naturalism, I mean, physicalism. It's just a theory, it's just an interpretation of, of facts that, um, that in olden times, people weren't burdened by such an awkward interpretation. And they had experience of that self that everybody knows about, but nobody knows biography of the self. It's a popular person. We all feel I am, but what are we? Why are we? What is our life? Hmm? So people, in, you know, from our tradition, for example, from the yoga tradition, there are experiencers, rishis, and there may be some today too. We can become, this is, this is the idea. Society doesn't foster it, doesn't lend to it, doesn't promote it and so forth. Can't expect as many, many saints perhaps. But how those people have influenced the world. One person standing on the ground of himself, herself, can have such an impact. It will never go away the impact of such people, what they have said, how they have spoken to the heart of the human condition and its possibilities, its potentials. That is too exciting of a proposal. If you hear it, what you are, what you be, and what, you, what you are provisionally and conventionally, and how shallow that is, that indriya priti, this, the lover of the senses, and what you, what you can be. I mean, what you are uncovered by the. It's so powerful, so compelling. It will stay forever with human society. It settles well, actually, with the human condition. It speaks to the more of us in a beautiful way. It allows us to be more without making anything less. In other words, we will worship nature, not try to rape nature. You honor nature, and in the context of that, we will realize we are the more. Nature wants you to rise above herself in human life. But we have to go about that in a, in a kind of a reverse way. Rather than taking, we have to resort to giving and give to yourself. There's yoga. You have to grow within to nourish the self. And, you know, then people reject religion because of its, largely because of its moral codes and so forth. But religion isn't really about moral codes. It's about moral kind of ethical principles that will be adjusted according to time and circumstance. I mean, if people were upset some of them about gay marriage, about what Monsanto's does. You know, it would be a really different world. It would really be a better world, don't you think? I mean, two consulting individuals, what they're going to do in private? You know, that's you know, one thing. And what Monsanto does to the earth, from where the food comes. This is a sin. This is so. Morals and ethics, you know, they have to be determined according to time and circumstance, adjusted and so forth. There's, there's, there's value in that. There's yama and there's niyama. There are do's and don'ts, but what they are, the principles, they will have to be. Details will be adjusted. We're stuck on some details, and we shouldn't judge them entirely. We should, how they may have been applied in different times, with different information, they may have been meaningful and useful and valid in those times. But beyond all that, anyway, what's at the heart of religion is is spirituality. This is what yoga seeks to cut to the chase to. What are the yamas and niyamas? The do's and the don'ts. In bhakti, I'll tell you what they are. Don't do what's unfavorable for bhakti. Do what's favorable for bhakti. That's it. And go. (laughs) Go to the other side. That makes sense. Okay, there you go. You got all your moral, you know, codes, you know what to do Uh, and get help maybe to determine what may be favorable and what may not, maybe some judgments, you know, calls to be made. In other words, essential spirituality seeks to take us to a plane beyond morality. Essential experiential spirituality, which is yoga is focused on, takes us to the plane where there's no question of stealing from yourself, in other words, when your sense of self expands to include everyone else, when you experience that you are a unit of that which underlies the whole material experience and fuels it, consciousness, who is there to take from The moral issues are solved. Do you understand? So we, we, we want, in our times, hopefully, essential spirituality. This is what yoga focuses on. Therefore... This verse I'm kind of speaking about in a roundabout way. It says, Kama labo One should not live one's life simply for love of the senses, but jignasu, nartoyas It's so nice. One should live one's life, human life, because it gives one the chance to talk about these things, to inquire. Jivaśya Jivaśya jiv... jignasu jiva means life, it means the self, jiva sitattva, the truth about the self, jignasu means to inquire. We should live the human life, not for love of the senses, but because it, just because it gives us the chance to inquire about the truth about the self, that elusive I am. What is that? There's the conventional side of it that's not going to last, and then there's, there's me that gives it convention by investing myself in matter and so forth. So because the human life gives us a chance to make this inquiry, it should be lived. Imagine if we lived like that, so high and uh, noble and a way to take advantage of the wealth of human life. And so we should inquire. And that's the whole idea. We do kirtan, it's like a call and response. There's somebody on the other end. That's the idea. So we should inquire. We are inquiring. This is the point. As I said, human life is an inquiry. It is an existential crisis. It is a big why. We're asking the question. And the Veda says, Om. It's talking back to us. The Veda starts like this. Om. It's the Eastern Revelation. Om. In one sense, it means yes. What is that yes? You think, well, what's the question? It says, yes. Big affirmation. Yes. What's the question? We are the question. Human life. Why am I? I feel like I'm more. I could be more than what meets the eye. I feel like there is more than what meets the eye. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a, So this is a, this is a conversation. Revelation in the East means a conversation about the more of ourselves with our source. See, what a guru is, if you will, a sadhu is 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 a person like this. He or she speaks the language of reason, which is the human language, we say. It's not English or Hindi or Spanish. It's, It's reason. We don't speak that well the language of love. We're kind of infants in that. We should use our head to soften our heart, but often we don't. We've talked about that. We use our head to harden our heart only, to be bigger takers. So we're kind of barely speaking reason sometimes, and hardly at all speaking love. And this revelation is all coming from love, the love, love world, the kingdom of love. Oh, What the hell does that mean? Oh, You don't, like, how do you understand that? It's like, it's a heart language. And we'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow, I think, at the... Bhakti-shab. It's a heart language. So we need someone to interpret that. So a sadhu has to, has to have experience in the land of love. Has to speak that language. And the language of reason as well. So the reasonable people, bring your intelligence here. Let us reason with you. And not just purely on the basis of a reason, which will never be conclusive. But if we can reason with a heart of love, then maybe we can charm you and tame you and free you also from the oppression even of your own intelligence of the need to know and control it and figure it out and put it in my pocket and I've got it you see sadhana is the way to find answers sadhana means spiritual practice, there's the way to find answers, conclusive answers and sometimes the answer is it doesn't matter but (laughs) No, it doesn't matter. It's just a thought. So, human life is the two things we want. We have human life. If we combine human life with sadhusanga, you know what is sadhusanga means? Like sat means real, sangha means like association, company with company of someone who's real. People who are real. Real means consciousness. It's real. Material things come and go. They're not real. The ultimate issue here today. They're gone tomorrow, what's watching the coming and the going, that it was enduring, that's real. We're of that nature. Someone who is acquainted with that, that kind of company and human life, these things combined, they will take us to the other side. Any question? What's the best way to take advantage of that if it comes into our lives as I guess I'm asking you, know, how should we conduct ourselves so that um, we can become receptive? Well, it's hard not to um, become a little receptive to these ideas. But the problem is only that the, the world is in our mind so much. We live in the world of our mind, and the world of our mind is a world of being formed by the senses of likes and dislikes, goods and bads, happiness and sads, and so forth. So, you know, if we, if we give good company and we, and we hear something that's really compelling and powerful and so forth, the unfortunate fact is that we rationalize in a way in terms of what's more important as the mind, the world of the mind, again, kind of comes on. Here what we're doing is we're trying at least to suspend that for a moment, right? I mean, you can even be listening to me and thinking, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do that, or or I can hopefully stop you from that for, for, for a little while. It feels good if you, if, it's, if you stop. You feel, well, that was peaceful, it was good. And I, for a while, I stopped, you know, trying to know by thinking. You have to think about what I say, in a sense, but, and you do to a point, and then you let certain things go in, and then, not sure about that. But if I can speak with enough heart, then you feel you're in friendly environment, and so you kind of let down your guard, and all kind of things go into your heart. And you don't know it even, but they're there, and they have an impact upon you. So, but the mind will rise up and rationalize, and you'll think, ah, that was great, and then shh, the world of our mind comes on, and then we, if we don't refresh that and keep that on a regular basis, then we think, well, it was something I did once before. You know, It sounded good, you know, but uh, you know, we, in the first chapter of the Gita, we find Arjuna rationalizing away, and so that's an important beginning kind of a lesson. It's difficult because that's our, you know, we're habituated in a particular way. This is very radical, and the implications of it are far-reaching. It's like a you know, this isn't really. It could be seen as that, but it's really not a night of entertainment here. <laughs> if you really think about this, it's pretty heavy, but you know, it's good. <laughs> uh, so it has ramifications. I mean, you can take it just as that was interesting, you know, or you can really hear it. It can go in and, and start to affect change. But anyway, how to how to take advantage of that? And, and like you feel it's something something good, so you want you want to take advantage of it. It's the same as anything else. I mean, you have to do it more often, I think. Yeah, that's the key. And then you become habituated to that. You have to, become, you have to wean yourself from what you are addicted to. Therefore, it's said in the Bhagavad that same attachment that we have for things when transferred to a saintly person, that which would have been the cause of my bondage, becomes the cause of my freedom. So become attached to this kind of, uh, you know, uh, these kind of gatherings and so forth. This has to become your fun, and it is. It is fun actually. You know, it's it, happiness is a serious thing. <laughs> actually, <laughs> we're really serious here about being happy. Super serious about that, and we're happy. <laughs> I, I can tell you this. So, you know, this, like I said, this has to become your fun. So you, you, we all have things that we do. We have to work, most of us, because we have desires and so forth. But we all have time that is to ourselves. We have income and time you know, to do what we want with. So we have to gradually cultivate the lifestyle such that this becomes the fun then that you do. This is how you spend your fun money you know, for this kind of a thing and your time and so forth. And, um, yeah, that's not such a bad proposal. Where else could we be tonight? You know, you can go on the list of all the things, and there might be a lot of them, but then you really think about them and you evaluate for yourself. It's not for me to convince you, but you, you and, and people come up with something else was more valuable. That's fine too. think as you like, you know, but I know some people have been coming and hearing and they think this is this is more valuable. I could count them on all the things I've done in my whole life, and this is more valuable this some people have you know come to think like that, so uh, this is powerful. It's not me. I'm not talking about myself. This is knowledge which should be shared. Whoever has it, it really has, is pressed to share that and not to keep it. It belongs to everybody. It's everybody's. Everybody has a human life. They have opportunity for it. So take advantage. So, and it's it's a that should be kind of our sadhana our spiritual practice in a general sense to try to have our life gravitate around this kind of. Sangha. i mean it's a it's a difficult thing because as I say you know most people don't aren't affected like in the same way that, by this kind of thing you may keep company largely if people that are that that's good but a lot of people aren't so the world's kind of calling us in a in a different um, direction but um, spiritual life is about change it's not about staying the way you are <laughs> if it was it wouldn't be worth in the you know Entertaining. We need to change, that's the whole problem. But change is difficult and uh, taxing, but good things aren't aren't the cheapest things in life. So again, Jeevas touched the tape now so it should be lived for this purpose. This is such a it's so exciting, I mean, uh, of an idea. And you can get real experience. Of the things we're talking about, you can get an epiphany. You can get the experience of this self it's in, in this kind of gathering and the implica- pursuing the implications of it. We're not talking about something just to just to believe in. It's difficult because it's like it's like um, you know seeing a UFO. What do you do then? You, you go to tell your friends. Nobody believes you. I heard this. What's really really? I, I'm listening to the news right now. Tell me later, you know, the game is on, you know, or whatever people do, you know. So, so what do you got to do? You got to join a UFO group or something. You know, other people, whatever, <laughs> like you, I mean, they saw it, you know. Keep good company. It's like anything. If you want to be successful in anything, you find other people who are interested in the same subject, and bring a magazine about it, and you form a club, and you you. you, you Pursue it in company, so that gives strength then. Hmm, right? What else? Yes? So, do you remember at lunch today we were talking about Thomas Merton and the idea of sadhana and how it's sort of Catholic and Christian side of things is missing, this concept of sadhana? And, and then we were discussing Bhanganam prayer, and I wonder if you would talk about how those of us who are interested in bhakti can change our orientation around what prayer is. Because if we grew up you know, praying for grandma to be well and dad to get a job and our surgery to go well or whatever, we're praying for ourselves or we're praying for the world or something. But I know that the orientation is meant to be different when we are about it. Yeah, often people pray for things, right? Give me my daily bread and that kind of thing. Or you know you pray for others to be better, to be helped, to be the poor people, to be saved. So it would be a more, a better idea than just for things, for your conventional sense of self. So, no, know, we should pray to to dismantle the conventional sense of self. That's rather bold. Try it. That's not the, you know, you, if you if you if you, you're sincere, uh, you apply yourself. Usually the things that are impediments. To your spiritual life, in a general sense, will come to your mind. It's not that hard. It's really not that hard. Truth attracts, you know, like attracts like, so truth attracts truth. Try to be truthful. <laughs> it's hard, but that will attract the truth. So, be a little introspective, and you think, I would like to dismantle my egoic sense of self. Then, boy, it'll come to you. Like, well, that's a problem right there. <laughs> right? So, then you're going then, if you have the courage, you pray that that would be would be separated from that, that it would be let go of. But you don't even want to pray because you're you're getting some false sense of security about it. And this old Swami just talking about some theory over here. I got something over here. It's not great, but but I still am attached to it. So it's, as I say, it's very radical. It's very very challenging. You have to kind of pull up the roots, so to speak. So. You have to pray for the, the power, you pray for the desire, even the will, to will that you might let go of, you know, such whatever it may be. So, you know, charity begins at home, I guess. You, you pray for yourself, <laughs> but for you, that your real self might come out, and that you have the strength to let go of the falsity that you find yourself addicted to. And if you're honest, that'll be apparent and if you think i haven't got any falsity then you know sit with somebody and somebody else will say yeah you do <laughs> you got a whole lot of it. Here. Try this you know. And uh so that's a real um real challenge but i would do it in the context of wanting to let go of the conventional sense of self so i can be the more that i am so to speak and be then be a lover so if 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 you will. So in other words, there's a purpose for letting go. In and of itself, it's 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 not the whole thing, but it's a good beginning. Someone, it might have been you or Diana, asked me the first time I spoke at the Bhakti shop about renunciation. I think it was maybe Diana. But I talked about detachment and um, what does that have to do with love, something like that. So. It's kind of like the first it's it doesn't look like love. You, sometimes you have to let go of your friends. they're holding you back. It's possible. so-called friends. so again, misery loves company, so you have a noble idea and people try to make make it smaller than it is and help you rationalize it away. so but when we step back and let go, if you will, it's kind of the first step in love because If we get too close to a thing, we can't see it for what it is. So we have to step back with a little objectivity and see the world for what it is. That's what we call detachment. And then we understand what we are and what the world is. Then we can interact in a healthy way. So so that letting go, if you will, that I've talked about praying about, that's um, kind of half the equation, if you will. There's other ways to pray, in bhakti too. I didn't speak too much directly about Krishna, I didn't mention the idea of satisfying the senses of Krishna and what that means, so that's a big topic, let me go into that perhaps another time, but um, Krishna represents kind of the, the, the taking end of the, of the giving end. And one end is the giving, the other end is the taking, like the stomach is taking everything, all the food that we put in, but of course it's giving it back, right? It's distributing it to the whole body in a way that no part can. This is what it meant by Krishna, in a sense. Able to give it back, digest it all. If the whole world was to give you everything they had, you couldn't digest it anyway, right? And you couldn't give it back to them in a way. So that's a a folly. That's why to love and to give comprehensively, we have to find a center that can take comprehensively. You give everything to the poor people, and then they'll be the rich people, and you'll be poor. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's not the, that's a good idea, but it's not the whole of giving. So you have to find the center. This is what we mean by by Krishna. So, and when we invoke the name of Krishna, then that's kind of a you know that's kind of an expression of of love. If you understand it? So to to be a you could pray to be a lover in a real, a wise lover in a real sense, and that automatically includes letting go, something like that. And what I mean to say is to bring the positive in. The negative things uh, appear to be what they are, and you can let them go. It's also true to say that we should give up certain things, but that's a little harsh. If we can bring the positive, the reason, what will be the possibilities for you? What there will be if you let go into your life, then it gives you impetus. You're like ice, you know. And the truth is like water, so <laughs> what can you do with ice? You can cool water. What can you do with water? So many things. So you should be like the water, not like the ice. You have great potential, so anyway, that's my answer. Another question. What's the time? Oh, we are ten minutes late, right? I was billed till 8 o'clock. So anyway, thank you very much for listening and helping me to talk about these these things. You're 50% of the equation. At least and then there's more of you than me, so more than 50%. So I appreciate your time and inquiring nature. Sincerely, thank you very much. Hare Krishna.